This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. And we're back in the dark room. Kevin Kautzman is nodding Whoa. at me. That means it is time to go. Kevin, how are you doing? Let's go. Mickey right, Mouse. Right. <laughs> Donald Duck. Can you do a, throw a Lovecraft in there? You... <laughs> that's, not, that's not bad. That's not bad. That's a Donald Duck. That's of... my pronunciation is off, but I yeah. have I have the Swiss pronunciation of Cthulhu, so it's a little <laughs> unusual. I didn't really roll my <laughs> right. Uh, that's pretty good. I liked it. Um, so as if you haven't guessed yet, we are talking uh, Lovecraft. We're talking Disney. And to do this, we for people who've listened to the show, you know how the dark room works. We've had the in-depth episode covering uh, uh, soup to nuts biography, talking about their work, um, talking about their influence on society and culture. Um, and in the dark room, uh, we loosen things up a little bit. We bring in some folks who maybe uh, have a, a different perspective or uh, a more perspective or something to say about these figures. Um, and we've brought in two people this time, full house. We brought in ben, the great Ben Thomas, who helped us out with the uh, Lovecraft, Lovecraft core episode and also was on a uh, uh, Frank Herbert uh, dark room uh, and uh, is the mastermind behind House Blackwood and the Omni Park series, which we're definitely going to talk about. And we've also brought in the great writer Laird Barron. And Ben, tell us about Laird. Laird Barron is sort of what would happen if Ernest Hemingway wrote Lovecraftian cosmic horror stories. Oh. Uh, so uh, let me just read a little bit of background about Laird. This is stuff from Wikipedia that Laird could probably tell us himself. But 
he was born in Alaska, uh, had a very harsh uh, youth, raced the Itiderod, that's the dog sled race in Alaska, three times in the 1990s and worked as a fisherman on the Bering Sea before he retired and became active as a writer. Wow. And I first discovered Laird Barron through reading a story called Bulldozer, which was in an anthology, and it hit me harder than anything I had read in a very long time. It was, I would sort of describe it as an Old West version of Heart of Darkness, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, as written by Cormac McCarthy. Wow. And if that doesn't grab you, I don't really know what else to say. <laughs> that, <laughs> right on. Awesome. Uh, I, I immediately went out and uh, and read everything else that he had written. And um, when I was putting together Back to Omni Park, the uh, the prequel book to uh, Tales from Omni Park, which you are in, Brad, uh, my, my co-editor Alicia and I decided that Laird Barron was a must-have uh, as a featured author. He was at the top of our list. Um, he spent a little time in the hospital earlier this year, and it was just unanimous. Um, he, we're going to keep this book on hold for as long as it takes to get a story from Laird. So now he has a story in Back to Omni Park, which is on Kickstarter right now. And uh, it's a fantastic story. And um, yeah, just I, can I just say I'm so stoked to have all three of you guys in a conversation together. I'm just, yeah, this uh, is I'm great. Very excited. You're three of my favorite people. I'm very excited <laughs> to see what's going to happen. Yeah, uh, excellent, you. excellent. Yeah, and, and let me just pump up the Omnipark Kickstarter. Um, look at guys making independent media isn't free. Um, we do stuff on shoestring budgets. We we pull together whatever we can. But when the rubber meets the road, we need a few bucks. And so uh, Ben has uh, uh, wrestled the forces of darkness and light to make the first Omnipark volume appear. Um, and the second one is Waiting in the Wings, great writers like Larry Barron, um, Brian Evanson, a number of other people. I'm going to have Ben list myself if you if you read my stuff and you, you like it are in there. But we need a few bucks on the Kickstarter by July 15th. Is that right? Three days to go. Three days to go. Now I know, I know we're getting close, but we need a little, a little, a little push. Yeah, so. we're, we're we are very close. Uh, a lot of good stuff is still left. We've got, uh, in addition to hardcovers and paperbacks, we've got ebook editions. We've got uh, cool stuff like limited edition posters, T-shirts, and also Tuckerizations from several famous authors. So if you ever want to die in a horror story, that is oh. up for sale as well. Well, that's pretty cool. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, one of the options I know for the Kickstarter, one of the tiers is to um, you're basically pre-ordering the book. Yes. In fact, a number of the tiers actually are pre-ordering the book in various yeah. forms. So you can get it. Yeah. You can pre-order a paperback, a hardcover or an ebook or a, a package of the book with some other cool souvenirs. Uh, that's that's mostly what uh, we're selling right now. Yeah. So if you think if you think you would want the book anyway, you might as well just get in on the Kickstarter and do it that way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Um, okay, so, well, since we're talking about it, Ben, and we'll 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 wrap this into everything because it actually fits right in the Disney love. This is why we talking Disney Lovecraft makes sense with the Omni Park alumna alumni here. Um, what it what the the hell is Omni Park, Ben? Omni Park is a theme park that existed in outside of Odessa, Texas from the 70s to the early 2000s. And it 
consisted of seven realms, each themed after a different area of science. Uh, but what makes Omnipark really special is that it attracted an unbelievable amount of conspiracy theorizing uh, in the early uh, 2000s on, on chat rooms and in forums. Uh, it's something that I really got pulled down that rabbit hole in the early 2000s. Uh, it was called Omniparchaeology, Omnipark Archaeology. There mm. were rumors, people were speculating that it had been a government black site under the theme park cover story, uh, that it had been a, a base where extraterrestrial communication took place, um, just all kinds of very strange, that that uh, Dalton Teague, the park's founder, was in league with the Kennedys and or the Bush family to do some kind of clandestine government research on mind control. Um, just a lot of really strange conspiracy theories about this park that I remember growing up with. Um, and I was really attracted to it as a premise for a fiction anthology because uh, I, I felt like it was just something radically different from anything else that was being done in horror fiction right now. And so I have had the incredible privilege of uh, not only editing one um, anthology of horror fiction about Omni Park with a lot of my favorite authors, but uh, now kickstarting this second one as well. And uh, as you said, it's got Laird Barron, it's got uh, Jonathan Mayberry, uh, Haley Piper, Brian Evenson, AC Wise, Angela Eureka Smith, it's there's like 17 authors i think in this thing and all of them are award winners it's absolutely stacked so i recommend people go check it out fantastic yeah we'll definitely have the, we'll have the link to the kickstarter in the show notes for people for sure um and it does you know you mentioned uh what possible sort of some sort of black site and this does call to mind the fact that our friend uncle walt america's uncle um we discussed this a little bit in the core episode, but there's even more there. I mean, there is uh, his there's something about these figures once they reach a certain point where the government has to get their hands on them, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> right? absolutely. So, it, well, that's yeah. the that's the chicken and the egg thing, too. Right. Do they allow you to pass through uh, or do you how does it all all work? I think it probably happens in both directions. Somebody achieves sure. enough power that then they get the knock on the door or they're knocking on the door. They make the deal. Yeah. 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 That's you could have a little bit of uh, agency juice as a treat <laughs> well this has got you know we we kind of threw down the gauntlet a little bit ben talking what are the how can we what, is there some connection between disney and lovecraft i'm sort of forcing the issue here i suppose but and you had some ideas ben you were you were immediately like oh yeah i i totally see these connections I have wanted to do a Walt Disney slash HP Lovecraft episode forever. <laughs> and getting to do it with Laird Barron is like, I, I, there's nothing out like this is, this is the peak for me. So uh, yeah, I'm just going to go into it. So this is a quick little list of connections and then we can build on these. Walt sure. Disney and HP Lovecraft, both were master world builders. Disney built theme parks and rich animated worlds. HP Lovecraft built an incredibly rich fictional universe. Things like uh, the Necronomicon and the lost city of Riliyah where Cthulhu lives. Both of them basically built mythological worlds that felt that they could be inhabitable from scratch. Both created culturally definitive characters. How about Mickey Mouse versus Cthulhu? How's that yeah. for a juxtaposition? Yeah. Um, both were intensely culturally conservative and obsessed with reclaiming the past. 
Uh, and in particular, both of them wanted to reclaim the magic of childhood, albeit in very different ways. Both through heavy inspiration from folk tales, uh, both were shaped by broken and disconnected family lives, and both of them remained largely solo in adulthood and middle age. Uh, so in our mind's eye, we picture them both as these uh, solitary sort of lonely men. Mm. And uh, so, so you're also building a little bit of a recipe for how to make some sort of, uh, you know, if you want to make a Walt Disney or make an HP Lovecraft, right. can put all of these all of these characteristics in a blender. Uh, <laughs> but deprive them of affection in childhood, surround them with transportive literature, and uh, yeah. let them yeah. go. Yeah. yeah, I I do like this notion of like they're them being um, them being uh, interested in like reclaiming the past, but their past is entirely imaginary. Like, which absolutely nobody, yeah. nobody there's nobody like that out there now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, nostalgia is probably uh, yeah, probably on the rise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, interesting. Well, let me ask Laird. Let me kick it to Laird. Uh, how do you feel? I, I, you know, Ben has Ben has described, given us a, a little taste of what your writing is like. How do you see the influence of Lovecraft on what you do? Oh, I thought we were going to talk more about uh, Lovecraft and and. In, in Disney because uh, we, I actually, oh. I, I'll go into the, I'll go into this but it's it's sure. um I think it's actually very interesting because I've never thought of them obviously they would there would be a, there, an awareness of one another especially both being in the entertainment industry etc um and certainly Lovecraft would be a, a well well aware of Disney because Disney was such a huge you know making the films and whatnot but um you know for years mm -hmm. but I find that actually what makes their similarities or their uh, the things that run parallel actually are, are 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 brought into more focus by the contrast, like these parallels that are yet contrast because yeah they both want to recreate basically create these fantasy realms but Lovecraft is almost whether he intended I doubt that he intended this but he comes off as a messianic figure and certainly that's how a lot of modern day adherence of love for the hardcore you know he knew something man there, there's a little right. bit of that element right like this right. and we're, we're um walt disney was more of a guru so they were both these these figures that kind of had cult almost like a, a mystery cult type following over time but radically different in how it manifested lovecraft is like trying to work out some real deep-seated issues probably mother issues mm -hmm. and xenophobia and all this stuff and, a, and it, it, like the reality behind all this there's there's this you know behind the surface there's this this facade there's this seething mass of stuff that you should be aware of but if you are it's going to drive you insane where lovecraft's like let's go back to the good old days when may you know dwarves and maidens and treasure Disney. and, yeah. and cast, right yeah. Uh, yeah. like this really civilized dark ages the dark ages but but clean and almost anesthetic right. clean yeah, so, fun. You whistle while you work, while you're dying of the plague. Yeah, pure escape, yeah. like like Walt Disney, and we're not talking about, you know, some kind of, um, you know, uh, term paper dissection of what really is going on. But just on the surface, though, if you look at his obsessions, Disney's obsessions, his his retreat into fantasy is similar to Lovecraft's. They're both a retreat, but where Lovecraft is is trying to use monsters to tell us how much he dislikes. Or at least subconsciously, he's telling us how much he dislikes immigrants, for example, mm -hmm. people of other ethnicities. Uh, Disney may be having some of the same action going on there, but he's trying to 
repaint history. He's trying to give us a, a, a false history. Um, oh. But that is built on the bones of fairy tales. He, he appropriates, you know, actual mythology and, and lore in such a way that like, oh, no, this is would this be so nice if this is how it how it was to so the point where he even creates a similar crumb of that kind of a conglomeration of that or composite of that universe. All, you know, everything but the kitchen sink at, at Disneyland. You can even go there now. Yeah. and retreat from reality yeah uh, nobody wants to go to lovecraft i mean lovecraft wouldn't they all would put a part <laughs> together and then you all you know go insane yeah lovecraft wouldn't want to go to lovecraft world would he yeah but and yeah. maybe that kind of answers your other question as far as lovecraft's influence on me mm -hmm. I, I actually think disney has as much of an influence on me or any other writer uh american writer at least uh as lovecraft you know um corporate corporatism uh, yeah. being the big bad these days. Well, and actually not just these days, but probably for the last 30 or 40 years, it's really come into its own as a, as a subgenre of horror, uh, the great evils of, of corporations, because the bottom line is a lot of us feel that no matter how good a corporation's intentions are by default, they can be nothing other than what they are, which is uh, by committee for profit, break a lot of eggs to make an omelet kind mm -hmm. of proposition so and, and, and then we see what they do when they they sort of take over you know they'll they would refer to it as ip but when you see you know i grew up reading comic books like obsessively marvel sure. comic books right yep. and so there was a moment where like they started making them into movies and i frankly i had a little bit of excitement and then you sort of watch it over time and you're like oh they're just like boiling this down into yep. some kind of slurry that they can just pour onto any situation it's like, the theme they turn them into theme parks yeah right yeah, they really very do. banal very i mean instead of being silly and and magical they're this mm -hmm. banal theme park ride and yeah. slick but not mm -hmm. but 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 no you know, not the everything screen, everything screen but, tested. Everything is sort yeah. of like you can feel that they have a spreadsheet somewhere. That's that right. Like tells it's you old, when's, what's supposed to auto tuned, happen. as the kids mm -hmm. say, it's very mm -hmm. auto tuned. And, you know, so so even though it's not something that I would consciously talk about or, or think about too often, but I have to admit, I do think that if I look at my writing and especially my my latter day uh, obsessions of my own, it has, you know, the big bads have a tendency to be connected to government agencies, corporations, that kind of thing. Large groups that that show that that have the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. That there's a lot of plausible deniability. Things get lost in the cracks, and they're they're just so big that they step on the little guy um, in the environment. You name it. But that said, you know, obviously Lovecraft is a at least in my early career, Lovecraft was a very um, overt influence, although. To be perfectly fair, I would say that it was more secondhand Lovecrafty, Lovecraftian writing that was more of an influence than Lovecraft himself. Like mm -hmm. Lovecraft himself became more of a direct influence in the last 10 or 15 years of my writing than the first 10. When I was actually writing my most Lovecraftian stuff, it would be mm -hmm. the Michael Shays and the Carl Edward Wagners and the Fritz Leibers. Even Borges did a Lovecraft story than, yeah. than pure undiluted Lovecraft which I would say is, like I said, much more now that I'm not writing as much of it, but I do selectively, I target every now and then I'll write a, a cosmic horror story and I'm much more conscious of actual Lovecraft, how Lovecraft would, would approach it as opposed right. to one of his circle or one of his descendants, yeah. uh, literary descendants. Yeah, there is an interesting, I mean, he he does represent a quite an interesting, it, it, it's one of those things where you 
you kind of end up reading him even if you don't read him directly in a certain right. sense because he, he is sort of his influence is omnipresent yeah this ties into another similarity between Disney and Lovecraft that is not quite as obvious, but it's the fact that both of their influence is so pervasive that you really can't imagine certain segments of culture without them. Like, what would a childhood without Disney even be? Like, we, we, it's Disney serves as a lens through which we process our own cultural history and our own folklore. Although, as Laird says, a lot of it has been whitewashed and sanitized by Disney. It, most people, when they think about your European folktales think about the Disney versions of Cinderella and Snow White. And in similar ways, Lovecraft is an incredibly pervasive influence on weird fiction and horror. On the Lovecraft episode, I talked about that, you know, Lovecraft is largely canceled by a lot of the horror community nowadays mm -hmm. because of his, you know, pervasive racism and various right. other things. But at the same time, as Laird says, even if you're influenced by other horror writers who are from later in the 20th century, they're influenced by Lovecraft. So it's right. you almost can't imagine what it would even be to be a 21st century horror right. or weird fiction writer without Lovecraft. Yeah, this is That's sort of overstating it, but it'd be like trying to cancel Shakespeare. It's like, Something yeah, like okay, yeah. sure, but you still have to deal with, you know, Romeo and Juliet. You know, you still are going to use all of his tropes anyway. Yeah, right. yeah. No, there's a lot to that. It's it's it, it, it's simply a fact. It's not an endorsement. It's simply, you know, and as we change as a society, we we become more critical mm -hmm. of our past. We're going. We're definitely going through. I don't know whether it's a permanent change, whether it's a cycle, but it is a fact that we are hypercritical in some cases of what's gone before. And, you know, I, as painful as it might be, I think it's a good thing. I think it's, it's good to interrogate, uh, especially for, you know, middle-aged guys like me. I think it's, I think it's excellent to interrogate what I ingested throughout my formative years, completely uncritically mm -hmm. from, from cartoons to, you know, from animation to Western. I mean, I read everything. I read Louis, Louis L'Amour to Barbara Cartland and uh, Eric Van Lusbader, uh and Borges and Herman Hesse. And the bottom line is none of it with a, you know, some of the, I, you know, I, I wasn't supposed to read it. It's too adult for me, but I did anyway. Mm -hmm. But the point was it was uncritical. Right. Um, Harold Robbins smut, you know, uh, you know a men's romance, so-called. The, the, the bottom line is... Um, it's not a bad thing to, to look back at uh, this stuff and say, all right, you know, what are we doing? What are we thinking? How, how, how are my opinions? And basically, uh, you know, you want to examine your biases. And I think this is nothing to be afraid of. I think it's I don't think you necessarily have to discard. I certainly am not for rewriting these books to make to appease modern sensibilities at all. Yeah, that's um, where my that, that's where my issue is, too, is like I'm right. fine with reexamining all of their, these people. But in terms of like tossing something out or changing the actual work, Brad, you do a podcast where you profile dead artists. So I know. I that's like it's like my day job at this point is is talking about this is when William S. Burroughs shot his wife in the face. Also. Well, that, right. That, yeah. Exactly. And mm -hmm. the last thing I'd say just on this topic is just that on one hand, there's one on one hoof, as the last would say. Yeah. You know, there's this, there's the uncritical examination, you know, don't, you don't examine stuff. You just, I love it. And that's that. Right. And then become defensive about it. And then, um, you know, too far the other direction is I'm throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I, I actually think that everybody has to choose where they're, what they, what they can tolerate. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I think the examination is important. I just think that we have to be rational about it. And I see a lot of pillaring these days of, if you're not with me, 
you're against me. Like if yeah. somebody was talking about MR James or not MR James Aikman the other day, Robert Aikman mm. and, and being attacked online because they liked them. They said, well, they're a classist and they're horrible. How can you like their writing? Yeah. And I, I think we have to be very careful with that. Basically yeah. picking, making enemies of people who are not your enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Shouts out. We have a Robert Aikman episode. It's one of my very favorite. I would say one of my very favorite authors of, of all time. Very. Yeah. It fits a very particular niche. He's mm -hmm. amazingly talented. And yeah, to, to, to throw him out on some. And he's also, you know, uh, well, anyway, <laughs> I don't I don't think I'm, you can throw him out. I'm all. entirely prepared to throw out Walt Disney and dismantle the Disney Corporation, well. ESPN, <laughs> Disney World, all of it brick by brick. Yeah. Uh, I think that as part of the coming regime change, that is going to be necessary. And the reason for this is that is the thing that he did to that poor owl when he yes. was a child. Well, we're, we're so all I have, from those I crimes. have just cause and uh, we will be we'll, we'll be seizing the endowment. Uh, the endowments, <laughs> as they say. Uh, and and uh, Art of Darkness Studios will be moving to Burbank. Uh, of course, <laughs> I am I am so, being somewhat facetious. You know, we just did Bukowski here recently, and he he absolutely despised Walt Disney and everything that he stood for. Yeah. Uh, tethering this tangent to what's been discussed thus far, a lot of those those early, well, a lot of those early uh, animated films like Snow White, these are based on on German folklore, which is famously, I'm not telling anybody something they don't know, uh, grotesque and, and horrific. These, these fairy stories, this folklore, the Grimm's stories were grim mm -hmm. and it, he Americanized them. Uh, but I think it's it's really essential to remember too that that the Americana or German Americans a great deal of Americans uh, can trace their ancestry back to Germans. So there's something of a weird psychic operation being done hmm. by this gee whiz Americanization of these uh, these tales that 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 almost borders on the the magical. Like we're hmm. gonna we're gonna uh, chew up your your history, your your folklore, but we're going to deracinate it, make it friendly, make uh, and make it all work out in the end. It's a yeah, very, very American thing. Soften the edges, make all the eyes big and dewy. And yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. Yep. I, I think this ties back into the fact that Disney and uh, Lovecraft were both fascinated by particularly by European folklore, but in very different ways. Uh, so Lovecraft's longest work of nonfiction is an, a long essay called Supernatural Horror in Literature. And the first chapter of it is devoted entirely to the roots of horror archetypes in old, particularly in old Germanic and Celtic folklore. Lovecraft sort of devotes a phrase here or there to Greco-Roman and uh, what he calls Oriental folklore and just dismisses it all out of hand as it's not dark enough. Uh, I don't think it's scary enough. Um, really? And, that, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and he very, uh, he very explicitly drew on particularly Germanic and Celtic folklore uh, as the roots for a lot of his uh, stories, particularly the dream quest stories, which are sort of what we today would call second world fantasy. They're set in a, a 
dream realm that's entirely disconnected from uh, from the the realm of the physical that we live in. And uh, Disney was also obsessed with these stories, but uh, in a very different way. Um, he seemed to feel that the these stories, Cinderella, Snow White, Pinocchio, these European folk tales, were important for Americans to get back in touch with. But the way the route that he found back to that was almost the opposite of Lovecraft's, uh, rather than by trying to touch the primordial sort of Jungian elements that these stories awoke, he was interested in what could be presented to children and families in the most sanitized, uh, agreeable way possible. I just think this mm. is two, two fascinatingly contrasting ways of processing similar source material. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I had never thought about that. A fun, a fun thought experiment would be to imagine a world where Lovecraft had some of the attributes of Disney and and ended up working with the CIA to take over a, a big portion of Florida and create like his vision. Instead of Disney World, you have you know Cthulhu World right. or Lovecraft World. And that, how amazing would that be? What a strange America. And all the sports sports ball that you see is is rendered through you know uh, CSN Cthulhu Sports Network, right? The old <laughs> old ones, old ones sports net network OOSN. Yeah. I mean, it's just as plausible to imagine. I mean, it's, you know, Disney's ascendancy and everything. It's, it's all arbitrary. This world that we inherit, it, it could have, it could have uh, developed along entirely different lines. And you mentioned the fact that it's hard to imagine a, a childhood without Disney. It's hard to imagine an adulthood without Disney. I don't, I don't yeah. know that the majority of people understand that the mouse is, is giving you your sports ball too. Yeah, that's what's interesting is this how pervasive it, it, it it's got its hands in every pie. But then also, I mean, you have to think about like you talk about the the notion of of sort of Lovecraft um, people being almost um, obsessively Lovecraftian in sort of practice, right? Sort of like thinking it's real or something like that. But I mean, go to one of the Disney parks and just watch the adults interact with the place i mean there are what we call disney adults who go every year every every chance they get they're obsessed they wear matching outfits they you know what i mean and it becomes they're trying just as desperately as some of the children to live in this world that you know walt has bequeathed to them um yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Both of this is yet another parallel is uh, both Lovecraft and Disney had sort of architectural um, sensibilities when it came to the world that they evoked. Um, we talked about this briefly on the Lovecraft episode that in uh, Michelle Welbeck's book against H.P. Lovecraft against the world against life, he describes uh, Lovecraft as having an architect's mind in a lot of the worlds that he describes. Uh, the most notable example being that story at the Mountains of Madness, where there's not really a plot in the sense of character driven plot. It's probably not a story that would be published today because the entire driver of the plot is that there's this 500 million year old city in Antarctica. And the more this group of explorers learn about it, the deeper into it they want to go. And the deeper into the city they go, the worse things get, and the deeper they want to go to find stuff that's even worse. It's not super yeah. believable as human motivation, but as a reader, right. that is exactly what you want them to do. And yeah, but it ends up being a very just a compelling description of a scene of a, a physical environment, really. Right. 
Yeah. And I remember reading that passage in Welbeck and thinking Lovecraft would have made a phenomenal theme park designer. As as Laird said, you probably wouldn't want to go to Lovecraft Land, but right. uh, at the same, <laughs> at, but if you uh, if you were to go there, it would have a similar design principle to a Disney park. The most interesting stuff would be in the center of each area, and mm -hmm. something about the flow of the of the area of the park would draw you inwards towards this central mystery, which would be the attraction, I guess, as opposed to the alien. Shoggoth that kills you in an actual right. Lovecraft story. But right. this was a this was a big inspiration for me when I was putting together uh, the first Omni Park anthology, Tales from Omni Park, and also this prequel now that we're doing back to Omni Park, because I, I was fascinated by the idea of what if we could get a collection of fiction stories about this theme park, which actually attracted so much conspiracy lore, but it actually did have some Lovecraftian things at the center of it. And how would different horror authors interpret that? Mm -hmm. Indeed. I'm I'm stoked to read everybody. I've only read one contribution to it. That's mine. And I like it. So I imagine yep. <laughs> I'm I, looking forward to everybody I, else's. When I read Laird's story for this book, uh, the immediate reaction that I had was I took a screen cap of one of the paragraphs and I direct messaged it to you, Brad. I was like, yeah, you're, yeah, right. you're going to love this story. And <laughs> I, I'll say when it comes to when it comes to fiction, I don't really care how many awards a person has won or how famous they are. I know good writing when I see it. I know when I like. And for my money, you, Brad and Laird are two of my favorite authors alive today. Oh, so take that's... that for what it's worth. That's that's sweet. You can come back on any time, Ben. <laughs> no, thank you. Sincerely, thank you. We're I know, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, thinking about a little bit more about Disney. So, you know, I think maybe in the after dark, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Um, I wanna I, I wanna tease we've kind of hit on stuff I already wanted to do then. So maybe, maybe we'll kind of switch gears. I do want to talk about some of the conspiracy theories, MK ultra related, uh, that sort of thing associated with Disney. Um, yeah, I can't go to Disney world. You're not like allowed I'm, to go. I, well, no, I just, I can't go. Like yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm certain something was planted in my brain. <laughs> As a young person, it probably was probably it was planted in all of our brains. I think mm -hmm. even I, I went to there a couple of years ago and I, you know, I'm a fairly cynical, you know, full grown adult. And I d definitely had moments of like, oh, look at that. Like, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me yeah. you're telling me you experienced whimsy. I did. I I skipped at one point. <laughs> this is a whimsy free zone. I, I will tell you, since we kind of talked, but they have a light show on the castle at night. I think it's every night. And it is. Listen, I've been to Burning Man. This is better than anything you see at Burning Man. It is the most insane light show probably on the planet. It's at least anyone that's happening on a regular basis. They are causing like a mass hallucinatory experience for thousands of people on a nightly basis. And I'm not saying there's anything sinister about it, but it is intense. Um, so if you if you ever go to the Disney Park in Florida, is the one in Florida land or world? That's world. 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 If you ever go there, do not leave early. Stay for the light show. Okay, Brett, it's worth stop the stop, entry. Stop. It's worth the price okay, of entry. Stop. You're you're doing an endorsement for Disney World, not accident, Brad. Okay. I can't help it. Stop. <laughs> the real Brad never made it back. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You don't know who you're talking to, Kevin. Who is Model <laughs> nine. Oh, geez. 
<laughs> well, this actually brings us to, I think, what you were touching on, Brad, which is uh, some connections between weird things uh, associated with Disney and his parks and weird things associated with Omnipark. And uh, this is actually one of the things that uh, I would love to hear Laird's thoughts on, because his Omnipark story is actually set in and around a ride called Nebula Quest, which actually uses some mind-altering technology. Oh, are you shooting that to me? Oh, I was. I wanted to see what your thoughts were on uh, the use of mind-altering technology in uh, Omni Park, and yeah, you know, I actually this might be a little bit of a tangent, but mm -hmm. it's just sort of how my mind works. Like when I'm talking, writing an essay, or writing a story, when I'm watching a movie, I I, I make these very strange non-linear associations, but I tie this all back to my 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 mother was extremely religious, and my father was not. He was borderline atheist. So that was a very, and we lived in a cabin in the woods for many years. And that was a really strange schism between the, the two. But when I was older, I remember I, I went with a family to a potluck. We were, we were living up in the hills and uh, I was renting a cabin from, they said, Hey, it's Thanksgiving and you're, you're out on your own. Do you want to come with us to this potluck for churches? starting?" I said, sure, it's food. The call and response that took place. I'd never been, even though my mother was religious, they didn't really have call and response like in a Pentecostal or more like really fundamentalist hellfire and brimstone tradition. So the first time I ever, everybody joined hands and the right reverend led us in very simple call and response sort of situation mm -hmm. before we could finally sit down and eat. And I've looked around and I was the only one looking around and because I was an outsider, the hair on my neck was standing up because I was not worried about going to a, a church. I've been to many churches, but this particular experience was something unearthly almost. And I started in the years after that, and I, I almost felt like I was going to leave my body. It was like this very kind of like when a police klaxon is hit or a fire engines going by and you get that, that it's designed to do that. It's designed to, to freeze you momentarily. Um, I kind of got that a, a sort of a similar response, except it was much more subtle and it built. And I started paying more attention when I went to places like, courthouses or airports or museums, but especially federally funded things, things that were designed to impress you in some way with your minuteness compared to the establishment, whether that was a private establishment or whether it's government funded or something like that, that you're tiny and we're big. You are one, you know, you, you, you're basically you're an ant compared to the, the, the mountain that you live under. And I started looking at architecture, sound, things like that, and realizing that so many things benign or all the way to sinister are assaulting us constantly. You couldn't walk through a mall without smelling the different scents that they that, that they were projecting out of the, the various shops. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't realize that's what was happening. But as time went on, I went, oh, baked bread sells a house, perfume coming out of the perfume place. Certain music is, is a Pavlovian association. Well, theme parks. I went to Disneyland in the nineties and it's the same, it's the same thing. You are being, and not in some kind of conspiratorial, you know, there's not like some kind of MK ultra thing necessarily going on, but you are definitely being conditioned through uh, saturation of sound, light, frequency, variation, mm -hmm. how the, just the acoustics of the park itself. Mm -hmm. And it's the same, it's, it's to a similar degree. You're going to run into that almost anywhere you go, be it an airport, a cathedral, uh, a park that, that, that there's either naturally occurring or has been designed to affect you in a certain way. 
I got into color theory, hmm. like basically how restaurants, fast food restaurants use certain colors to encourage you to eat and they get the fuck out. <laughs> That's what they want. McDonald's doesn't want you loitering. They want your ass out of the seat. So they found out that certain color schemes like yellow, certain types of crimson, sort of bordering on crimson, have a tendency to excite your hunger. But once it's sated, you feel agitated and want to go. Mm-hmm. Weightlifters, mm-hmm. certain colored rooms, they could lift more mm-hmm. or less, depending on what the color of the room is. Mm-hmm. So long winded way of just saying, I think that there is no question that theme parks are screwing with your with your mind to what effect to get you well i mean in in la or excuse me in vegas the whole idea of using almost pure like pure oxygen to keep you awake no clocks anywhere right we want you to keep gambling you you're always a mark as a as a as a citizen you are you are Mm -hmm. always a mark where in many places that you go to it's just what do they want from you right yeah i know it's this in vegas i i i i there was a time where I went there for work a lot. And so I wasn't even a tourist. I was just there. Right. And you'd stay in a casino because that would be the cheapest place to stay in town. You'd get some deal and just walking through there and being just like completely disoriented. And I felt like I was being put into a mind state where nothing would surprise me. So no matter what came or came about, I would just be OK with it. That was the impression I right, got compliance. trying to get. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, well, I've lost a thousand dollars. That's fine. This guy wants to sell me that. That's like just because everything is so dynamic and unpredictable. Right. Yeah, it's very strange. And we actually we did an episode on the man who invented the shopping mall, Victor Gruen. And he he probably pioneered some of these techniques yeah, in did. a way. He, yeah, he did. He certainly yeah. did pioneer that. And well, and there are countless PhDs right now working on it, uh, working to get you to subscribe to patreon.com. <laughs> we, we, we need or, to do some, we need uh, to do some research on this. Well, the speaking, app. Because you bring up the mall and I could be wrong about this, but I've been to Providence quite a few times to the convention that goes, you know, uh, Necronomicon and to just readings. And there's that mall that the Lovecraft arts, council is uh, is in and from my, my understanding is that's the oldest mall in america actually oh really the arcade yeah might be up there yeah interesting. which i think is in, because it's a lovecraft conversation right, right? well there, there you go yeah but, well now well couldn't be old enough that he went there right no i don't know what old. year uh it's been he there died in, he died in 37 so it'd, 37. it'd be a pretty early mall if, yeah. yeah i don't think it's the old it's the oldest mall in america i don't know what year <laughs> it was uh built but it's yeah. old i mean it's yeah it has old gothic looking you know cool. architecture so very cool yeah, yeah. it is a, it's neat it's a it's a neat it's not what you would think of as a mall at all but that's sure that's what it is yeah yeah, you wouldn't you, yeah you, is, is it the westminster arcade is that the one uh, uh I'm going to fumble yeah. this. It's it, I'd have to look it up. I just know that the Lovecraft Arts Council is, is there and it's yeah, I, it's, it's just, I yeah. It's like it's open like when you walk through you have open it's like open air mm-hmm. in many places and it's yep. tree you've got huge plants growing in it and yeah. old wood ba- uh, balconies, you know like uh, old, like old pine or oak. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the floors actually are wooden, you know, it's it's it's, it's gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, if if it is this Westminster Arcade, it looks a lot like Covent Garden in uh, London. And uh, yeah, very interesting. Very cool. I just, I honestly, I don't know what year. Yeah, it looks like it was built in 18, 1828. Whoa. So Lovecraft Mm -hmm. probably did walk around in some version of, you know, it's probably been renoed to some degree, but. I've never, I've never researched it. It's just that, you know, I've been a guest because the um the love you know because that's uh the arts council is you know very much devoted to lovecraft that's their 
the backbone, you know, of Lovecraft's Lovecraftian studies and things like that. And uh, old Hans, you know, the guy that runs the place, he was very, you know, probably told me on multiple occasions. He's the one that said, oh, yeah, this is, you know, old. And I don't think I ever specifically asked if Lovecraft had visited, but that was certainly it wouldn't shock me because that was sort of the tone of the conversation that, you know, these halls that Lovecraft had walked. Yeah. So, yeah, possibly. Free- free idea out there for any writers of some kind of Lovecraftian horror story about this mall. I think <laughs> it's rich territory. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. Good stuff. Yeah. What well, else you got, uh, Brad? Well, Bring it on. <laughs> what else do I got? Um, You know, I think I, there's a bunch of just sort of errata that I came up uh, across about Disney, about the parks. But now that we're we're talking about this connection, I'm starting to think about the various sort of quasi Lovecraftian figures in Disney films. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Ursula from The Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the the it would be the devil from Fantasia um, from what is it? Well, uh, Night Walker on Bald Disney. Mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Night on Bald Mountain. And I, there's got to be some others that I'm not quite thinking of. But this sort of tentacular, shadowy, uh, sl- somewhat amorphous kind of entity, I think, is probably appearing in there from time to time. Um, this is a weird, semi-random connection. Not that mm-hmm. random, actually. That uh, At Epcot Center, I used to go with my family back in the 80s, and uh, mm-hmm. there was a ride called Journey into Imagination, which was uh, this little dragon called Figment, and uh, they took you through scenes exploring oh, the Figment. Yeah, yeah, you remember yeah. Figment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> every every scene, it was sort of like a dark ride. Uh, every, it would take you into different rooms, and each room was sort of devoted to a different uh, mode of creative expression. And one of them was writing, and that was always mm-hmm. my favorite room because I wanted to be a writer. And there was one little corner of the room where Figment is uh, showing off the the wonders of writing and it says horror and it has a book that looks like an old gothic novel and there's an animated shadow play on the wall of tentacles coming out of the book. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, so that's definitely... Is that still there, do you think? No, that Journey into Imagination has been renovated. They they destroyed, along with most of the rest of Epcot, they gutted that ride and replaced it with something else. But Yeah, I'm sure... Uh, it's probably gotten they probably softened the edges of it right and something that's big has big dewy eyes and yeah Mm -hmm. yeah very interesting no epcot was a i do i hadn't thought of i had a little figment plushie from Mm -hmm. going to epcot when sometime in the 80s yeah very interesting uh yeah, there's an interest. So, I, I mean, one of the things about um, Disney and Lovecraft that I think is an interesting connection, and we've sort of touched on it, but maybe there's more here. They're both, <clears throat> interestingly, I, one of the things I was fascinated with about the Lovecraft when we did the doing the deep dive research on Lovecraft as a person um, was his. Uh, I mean, he was basically a loyalist to the crown, right? I mean, he, yeah. he, 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 what was it? He wouldn't have, he didn't think America should have ever like gained independence. Is that how that worked? Yeah. He was a loyalist to the British crown. And uh, when they would stand up to sing, not the national anthem, but uh, one of the other the American, of allegiance or something, yeah, so Amer- some other famous American patriotic song, he would stand up and refuse to put his hand over the heart and sing God save the king. So, yeah, right. right. Um, I this I, I was reminded of that when I read this 
apparent fact about the Disney parks that the American flag, Main Street USA in, Dis- in, the Dis- in Disney World, right? So you go in and it's a cartoon version of a imagined uh, little town USA Main Street. And there's little shops that you can go to and you can like, you know, it, it, if at first glance, it looks like it could be a normal street, but it's all clearly selling you Disney merchandise. But there are a whole bunch of and, and it ties into Disney Walt's apparent patriotism. Um, but apparently the flags on Main Street USA aren't actually American flags. They appear to be American flags, but they are missing a star or a couple stars or they don't have all the stripes. And the reason for this, apparently, is so that they don't have to put them at half mast on a day in which something nor you know oh, normally put something damn. in is that mass. true or is that is that this is in, it's internet it looks true. like it, it right right yeah. the flags on main street usa are props huh it's internet true they yeah. do have some real american <laughs> flags i'm i'm sure they have some yeah right yeah so this is what it says here on weird disney and it's mm-hmm. the it's the mickey mouse logo with a spiral in the center Because you know what that signifies. Mm -hmm. Disney World does have some real American flags. In fact, every day since it opened back in 1971, the Magic Kingdom has staged a flag-lowering ceremony in Town Square. Okay, why would you you stage a flag-lowering ceremony? Because you're trying to call back to an imagined past. Right. Okay, I... Okay. You're trying to, like... Right. But even that is sort of perverse and probably in violation of the flag. Well, who knows? But the ones you see sprinkled around like candy, fake is a $3 bill. That's a good phrase. Interesting, Brad. That's a good pull. I like yeah. that. Yeah. It, it, mm. it, it just, it's sort of, the reason that it caught my eye was that mm. it's, to me, is em- emblematic of something that, I don't know if necessarily Walt was doing it, but the create Walt's creation of the Disney enterprise does it's sort of like we will spend millions of dollars to create the um felt experience of patriotism but when you really get down to now, it we're faking it <laughs> we may be fair enough yeah but we may be spreading some internet hooey is uh, in the background here but now but listen to this okay so this is another website called disney dash secrets Okay, and this says that that story isn't true Hmm. because as Walt created Main Street USA, he knew that even the smallest, uh, smallest uh, detail would not only enhance the story, but also help make the magic real. One of the details he included can be found in the flags on Main Street. Difficult to notice. Ba ba ba. They have 13 stripes, but they have 45 stars instead of 50. Hmm. Apparently. This is because Main Street USA is meant to be set between 1890 and 1910. Oh, you right? don't want Hawaii and Alaska uh, and Nevada and sure, whatever the last five are. Now, you don't want those included. Even, but that, even that is kind of, but maybe it's a yes and thing. Maybe it's like, well, it's not a real American flag, so we don't have to lower it. Well, why? Well, because it's historical and okay. Uh, yeah, it sounds convenient. Yeah. yeah, who knows? Yeah. They may have they have may have imagined an excuse. All right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, Dude, well, I, I, mean, I am going to be. We are going to be redacted for if for this episode. We need, I mean, to, get a, we need to get a stronger legal team. Yeah, for real. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if the nutman Dan Baltic is going to want the heat from the from the Disney episode. In any case, this is a this is a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, speaking, this, speaking ahead, of ben. what reconstructions, uh, let's not forget that Disney is the theme park, Disney World specifically, that has World Showcase, which is an entire theme park that has recreated many versions of a whole bunch of countries, uh, which are replicated down to the highest level of detail, because that's what Disney does, right? They have right. four levels of detail going all the way down to things like the color and the quality of the paint and the, uh, you know, the tiniest little thumbprints on things are all arranged and put there deliberately. So they designers traveled around the world and took fo- photographs of this these uh, architectural wonders and also small buildings on the street and the way people dressed, came back and replicated them in miniature in uh, at a very high level of detail, brought people over from those actual countries who continue to speak their own languages, but wear a Disney-fied version of their national traditional mode of dress so that you can have a perfectly simulated but also very Disney-fied and safe experience of being in that country (laughs) just the just the think about the the mentality of a group of people who would conceive of creating something like that right 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 we'll just we'll just go to that place we'll distill that place to its essence and then we'll repackage and sell it to you and then you don't even have to go there Yeah, yeah, just yeah. like why you go said, to whip it, whip it down into slurry and pour yeah. it wherever you want. Yeah, why well, go to yeah. Sweden to eat Sweden to go eat the meatballs? Just go to Disney. Yeah, yeah. yeah very interesting. It's an extremely fundamentally American attitude and idea, and it's really um, safety obsessed, and it, it represents a, a fear of the other, uh, a fear of the alien, uh, Which... and, a, and a desire to control it, uh, and probably also a certain degree of disgust. And and yeah. that's that's not uncommon. I mean, he's trying to extract the middle American dollar mm-hmm. uh, out of. And you have to remember too, a lot of people didn't have passports. You know, families. We got to go somewhere safe. Well, we're not going to France. Yeah. We're not going to Spain. Well, I'd have to well, learn. I'd have to learn Spanish. Yeah. Well, Kevin, that's that's interesting. I feel like we're maybe getting uh, <clears throat> in another way, which we've already done this a few times. I think getting to a connection between Disney and Lovecraft again, because. I think if you look up at a lot of Lovecraft's work, it comes out of an anxiety about the other, as we've discussed, right? I mean, he's he's transmogrifying his fears and anxieties and insecurities and into into actual monsters. Um, Disney's well, doing course, a different thing with them, but it's right. it's there's a similarity in the in the creative impulse. It seems like, but, yeah, and there are monsters out there. Let's mm-hmm. be real, too. Yeah. I mean, there's so there's some sort of wisdom to this. This is what these folk tales serve to do uh for, for and, and to a degree still serve to do their warnings their lessons uh for children uh, yeah you'll notice they they never they don't they always have a scary scene or a scary character they don't they don't work if they don't a lot right? of that disney stuff it can be very startling when you're a kid i mean i remember pinocchio like was frightening he gets turned into a donkey donkey and that was it was frightening to me as a very young child you remember the hallucinatory elephant sequence in Dumbo? Absolutely yeah. terrified me. Oh my god. He's having he's having <laughs> yeah, he's having DTs. Yeah. He's having delirium yeah. tremens from yeah, it's just like okay, all right. So, interesting. <laughs> but it's all information, you know. Uh and I still have a soft spot for a lot of that Disney stuff. Uh the the Robin Hood Oodle Lolly. Oh, so Come good. on, man. So good. It's so good. 
Yeah. No, I think I think you end up having <clears throat> some form of love hate relationship with it. I mean, I'm clearly very fond of. I saw all the Disney movies growing up. I was quite fond of all of them, really. You know, and yeah, if Robin Hood popped on, I would definitely watch. That might be my favorite one, actually. Now, banger. Yeah. 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 And 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 seminal for the furry community, I've been told. Okay, all right. All oh, right. Geez. <laughs> That's a different show. Kevin, hey, Kevin, you've been turned out. You're oh right here, goodness. Folks. Oh gracious. <laughs> <laughs> you found my my Reddit alt. <laughs> Outstanding. Oh man. Just a little fox with a microphone and like, <laughs> do the voice. Do the voice. Pot. No, I'm not gonna do oh, the voice. Oh, good stuff. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah, Disney is so all-encompassing. I mean, it's been it's essentially been an arm of the American government since the war, since World War II. I mean, yeah, it's the I, it is the defining American corporation between the it, Disney, IBM. You don't have many companies that are at that tier, Microsoft, Apple, etc. Uh, but as far as like media entertainment conglomerates, they they created the playbook. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's why DeSantis will ultimately be destroyed. Yeah, he's he he picked the wrong enemy, didn't he? He's not going to win that right. Win that battle. You can go up against the deep state. You can go up against one of the major political parties. You can go up against the church. But if you go up against Disney, the mouse in America come armed for bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm not even joking. He'll no. It's it's ultimately uh, yeah. Ultimately, for just pragmatic reasons, that's the end of him. Well, mm. he, he, he had, I mean, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thing. You're not going up against uh, an enemy or a rival that you're just going to have to face in court. They, you know, what is the thing? Never, uh, never pick a fight with somebody who buys ink by the barrel, right? That it's that sort of situation. I mean, they own well, half the media. So I mean, and, and and spiritually on some level, yes, I understand this isn't a political podcast, but yeah. we are talking about Walt Disney and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's uh, it is political. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, on some sort of psychic spiritual level. When you pick on Disney in the American, like perma zeitgeist, right? the zeitgeist we have it's like it's like you're attacking the american dream on some level mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. you know you're yeah it's yeah you're probably right laird you maybe picked the wrong uh pick the wrong mouse to to go after i, I think so i yeah mm-hmm. no i I'm, I'm actually really glad to have had this conversation because you know i've never really consciously analyzed my feelings about disney i've had feelings mm-hmm. but no the more that i the more that we talk about the more i'm I'm not even talking about the fun conspiracy, you know, conspiracy theories and stuff. I mean, I grew up my there was I live at light years from Disneyland in Alaska in the 1970s. And but that was some place you, know, you wanted to go. You wanted to go to Disneyland someday. And you love the movies and the, and, the, and the shows, the musicals and all this good stuff. But strangely enough, I mean, Disney, Walt Disney actually had a dark reputation in my household and among some of the friends that I had when I was growing up. And I'm not, you know, not kidding. I mean, there was as, this, there was always man, talk. Walt Disney, the man. Yeah. Not that, not the, the, the idea that the place was sort of sinister was more of a rebellious youth. You know, when you go, when you start, you know, you get into the college age years, you start going, oh man, the man, man. Right. No, when I was right, they, they, they don't treat their workers right, man. Right. They got tunnels. They haul the bodies away, man. You can't, I mean, law and order, right? Back in the eighties did an episode yeah. where uh, the guy that voices, um, not Homer, maybe it's Homer. Uh, 
he he was at a place just like Disney, and he vomit. They wouldn't let him take off his hel- his his uh, costume to vomit, and so he almost choked to death. And so he was suing them because they had right. the you can never, no matter how sick you are, you can never. If you die in that suit, we're gonna have two guys kind of pretend you're walking. Uh, so that right. was later. No, when I was a kid, it was. I'm sure it's, uh, you know, lies, damn lies, but it was how he was in. Inter- he was secretly a German or a Nazi sympathizer. And so he was into the occult Satanism and other dark Gnostic traditions. And that his, when he died, they had preserved his head. I think in the stories that I always heard when I was a kid, it was his head is somewhere like Ted Hughes, you know, it's, it's or Ted Williams. It's somewhere, you know, in a vault waiting for, to be reanimated when we have the technology give them, a, give them an android body or something like that you know mm. i'm not speaking to how crazy these theories are but these are the my mom hated him she said oh he's a satanist really, really? oh yeah that they're yeah. satanic or and or oh for sure oh yeah and, and, and you know, this, throughout his oh and there is i mean you know i do i was just poking around disneydailydime.com like alchemical a, stuff you mm-hmm. know that you name it right yeah uh, i mean there's sorcerers of the magic kingdom that's right yeah, in the right. fire station, you can pick up cards for a magical yeah. scavenger hunt. I mean, already you've got you're losing the fundamental fundamentalists. I mean, already. Yeah. Say yeah. The so, so, so they were poisoning Ooh. me against him. But you know, actually, what was my big break with with Disney when I was a kid mm-hmm. wasn't any of that. Because I turned out, you know, I turned into an atheist in time, or at least quasi atheist. Mm-hmm. I broke with Disney, at least the wonder vanished the point that when i went to disneyland in the 90s i was just angry more than i was i was just annoyed <laughs> the whole time i was there i was like this sucks you know you have to either be with a girl or you have to mm-hmm. be with your kids like in other words you have to be there for a mission going there did, just as a 22 year old dude was like with friends with you, like, you did oh you just went with friends uh, yeah, uh, oh, yeah it was like, we, we had okay. a free a guy that actually was a vp of universal studios set us up and we went and you know like five of us went it was fun but it wasn't an experience for footloose, fancy free you. Yeah, right? you were, you're not the target. Even a hick from Alaska, even a hick yeah. from Alaska. Well, I was just like, but no, what my break was with him uh, was um, Bambi. Mm. So I grew up watching Bambi. It's so oh, it's terrible. It's sad, mm. but it's this beautiful thumper. There's all this nice stuff mo- most of the time. Then mm. you read the book. And actually, the oh, first boy. time I my mom read it to me after I was in second grade, third grade, and my mom read read it to me because it's not that long it's like a novella the german you know the translated german edition and holy fuckamoly that's like a horror story and it's is it i don't yeah. know anything about the oh, book yeah. shit, dude that yeah. it's it's the scene in the cartoon sorry for spoilers everybody but where bambi's mom gets shot mm-hmm. basically off camera right but then he goes to her and she's lying there that's the whole goddamn book except way darker than that really and it follows it's like you talk about heart of darkness yeah. It's like he becomes Kurtz, but Bambi becomes sort of like Kurtz by the end. He becomes the old stag, and he's he gets shot at one point during the uh, during the book, and the old stag of the wood comes and and helps him elude the the hounds, and then he like helps him uh, sort of I forget how it worked, but basically poulticed him. Like you lie down in this mud, and this will this will seal the wound because because he, he got wow. like a bullet hole through him, and there was just all this tension and just darkness interspersed with beautiful beautiful bits of light i mean it was certainly it wasn't all downer but it, it sounds a, sounds good traditionally germanic yeah. dark nihilistic like even the end is a happy ending but kind of 
the world right. keeps turning and the darkness, the jet, you know, you'll be the old stag and you'll die alone in the woods one day too, my son. Mm. And but that's really what the book is about is you eventually die. Your friends all die or abandon you mm. or get shot by hunters and mm. you, you will die alone in the woods after you breed a bunch of, you know, does. And that's going to be the end of you. Mm-hmm. And I just looked at, then I look at Bambi and I look at this, this I look at that. I'm like, you motherfucker. Right. Is. <laughs> and then, and then of course, not long after that, you touching on what you guys said about grim fairy tales. Oh, you mean they didn't? I forget what happened to the the the, the stepmother in the cartoon, but nothing terrible. Like mm-hmm. if she fell or you know something minor. I mean, she, she was dealt with, but in a sanitary way. Mm-hmm. And the original, uh, you know, the original text, <laughs> the dwarves they, they heat at the wedding. They heat up iron shoes and clap them on her feet. I think Neil Gaiman actually touched on that. He actually <laughs> did a story that actually used utilized that. They made her dance to death in hot and and red hot iron slippers. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm looking at him going, "You liar!" Right? You yeah, liar. you took all this dark, heavy, intense stuff yeah. and just turn it into thumper, which everybody loves thumper. Yeah, yeah. and I yeah. just was that was my reaction as a child. Is mm. you're a liar. Right. Right. Not That's that it not wasn't good. I, I still yeah. thought they were good. I I enjoyed Disney movies. I'm not. I'm a human mm. being, mm-hmm. but as a kid that was my actual reaction is you lying sack of shit this is not <laughs> you know well and, i was, I was outraged yeah well and this that. is this is worth lingering over because i'm on the uh bambi wikipedia and in 1936 uh the nazis banned the original as a political allegory on the treatment of jews in europe and many copies of the novel were burned making original first editions rare and hard to find not a big fan of book burning on this podcast. As no. a rule, we are book no. respecters. Periodically, mm-hmm. you'll see us on the books chart charts uh, in Apple Podcasts, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Not a fan of book burning. No. And but you have to ask, like, what's worse, burning burning the copies of the book, or totally reengineering the meaning and the soul of something, and just consuming it and making your version of it the Kevin, uh, de facto, it's one I don't of the know. darkest fucking things I've ever heard, and <laughs> there's a little too much. There's too much to think. I mean, that's yeah. It's I, it's a tricky. Mm, no, uh, it's right. It's, it's not a zero sum game, so we can hate mm-hmm. both. But mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. right. In some ways, the burn you are never going to burn the idea. That book will come out. That idea will come out again. But to warp it, to lobotomize it, mm-hmm. essentially, right? Yeah. I, w- I was. I was. You know, one of the things I was going to say earlier is that. I, I, I'm not a big activist against Disney or anything like that. I, mm. I, I like I said, I enjoy my sports ball and I don't care yeah. who brings it to me necessarily. Sure. Sure. But, and, and if you give me a good, and I've laughed my ass off at the Emperor's New Groove and things like that. But I will well, they've made, that. there's some great Disney movies. Right. I mean, this was what's That's kind not, of uh, of talking about. The, the Lion yeah. King is an all time banger. All time banger. Especially yeah. when he throws the, the lion cub off the cliff instead of raising him up. But no, <laughs> the, the alternate version, the one that didn't play so well with the audience. But the, yeah. but the point is, is I was going to use the word you know, neutering that, that they neutered these cultures and that they, um, and maybe in some ways that is the correct term to make safe, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sense of not to desexify them, but to, mm-hmm. but to just make them to pacify, to make them safe. And I do, I think lobot- lobotomization and pacification, whether it's intentional uh, to, to that degree, or whether it's just a uh, subconscious manifestation you know our manifestation of their sub of his subconscious yeah. and his crew subconscious it's very a dark it's a very dark um yeah. when you look at it that way it's extremely dark what they did 
Like I said, as a child, I didn't know it was an allegory or didn't would never have suspected that. I just knew that I was being lied to, not tricked, like, you know, in a in a fun way. Like, oh, Santa Claus, we all know Santa Claus is not real, but we're going to pretend dad, Uncle Bill, Santa Claus. Yeah. No, in a, you know, somebody's fucking with my head. And as a child, I didn't have the, wasn't able to articulate that or to, I didn't have the emotional bandwidth to understand exactly what it was. But damn it, kids do know. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was nothing special. I, but I, when I saw it, I, I knew it. And it just took me many years to go, why that bothered me so much and i think that actually kevin hit it in a nutshell this is what this is what in some ways this is what they did yeah wow they poisoned it lobotomized it however you want to put it yeah i learned a new phrase holy fuckamole i like it it. that's That's not mine that's my um (laughs) janet reed who was an agent for me for many years okay she would every now and then she'd say holy fuckamole we just got lowballed. <laughs> the big five guy that we were hoping was going to give us a bunch of money uh, just lowballed yeah. us. Yeah. Uh, no. Oh man. Yeah, Jan, Reed, see... God bless her. Well, here's Alrighty. a sentence I here's a sentence I never thought I was going to say. Now I really want to read Bambi. Because, yeah, I know, right? Because Laird Barron recommended it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I know. Um, you were describing as, it. And I was like, this sounds awesome. It's as yeah. good as I, I haven't read it in many years. Yeah, but. As far as I'm concerned, I did read it years after, but it's probably been 25, 30 years since I've read it. I think it's as good as uh, Heart of Darkness. Wow. So, I, I wouldn't Damn. compare them necessarily. Like, yeah. don't read it going, but it's, it gives you that. Well, it's similar time periods too of the authors and stuff, mm-hmm. right? The, the writing was, of a, you know, there's a generational thing there, but the bottom line is, it is, I hope it holds up, but it, it really has profoundly affected my writing. Wow. Just subconsciously. Mm. Wow. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. Sure. Well, we're coming up. We're coming up on the hour here. I definitely yeah. want to check that out. Maybe we have to cover this fellow, the fellow who wrote it at some point. Um, I do cool. have good news for everybody. On, mm. on November 21st of 2022, a live action horror film titled Bambi the Reckoning was <laughs> announced. Uh, the film will be about the titular character getting revenge after the death of his mother. Uh, mother, <laughs> and the film is expected to begin principal p- uh, photography in mid 2023. Uh, oh, this is it's in the public domain now, right? So well, yeah, it must yeah. be yeah, right. Yeah, Bambi, yeah, the reckoning. Yeah, very interesting. What are we talking about on the After Dark, Brad? Well, we're going to talk. Um, we've we've kind of hinted at various conspiracy theories, but we're actually going to talk about some of the verifiable work that Walt did with the u.s government basically you know was walt disney a spy of some sort he was at least a propagandist we're going to actually talk about some of the specific details about that and i think there's some interesting uh events in walt's life and some interesting things produced by disney that tie into this And, and and this isn't even like far afield uh you know uh hey man this is like oh he actually went to south america and dot 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 um so we're gonna talk about that um, and then maybe I'm sure we've, we'll have a couple other odds and ends that we'll we'll want to continue on. Um, again, thank you, Laird, and thank you, Ben. Um, Kickstarter for Omni Park, back to Omni Park. Um, ben, why don't you just bump, pump that up for a second? 
Back to Omni Park is on Kickstarter, as you said, Brad. It is mm -hmm. funding right now. We still have hardcover copies and softcover copies left, as well as uh, other cool stuff like Tuckerizations, where you can die as a character in a horror story. It's got all new original stories. When I say all new original stories, I mean they are exclusive to this anthology by Laird Barron, Jonathan Mayberry, Haley Piper, Brian Evenson, AC Wise, Angela Eureka Smith, and a whole bunch of other fantastic horror and weird fiction writers. Again, it's a collection of weird stories set at a theme park that attracted a huge amount of conspiracy theorizing, and it's based on the premise of what if all those conspiracy theories were true. Uh, many of today's greatest horror authors examining those topics in fiction. Go check it out. Kickstarter and search for Back to Omni Park. Love it. Yeah. And we'll have a link. We'll have a link to that in the show as well as links to to uh, find Laird and Ben on on social media. Um, yeah. Thank you, guys. Much appreciated. We'll be back uh, in a little bit for our Patreon, our beloved Patreon fam. Yes. Get in there. Support independent media. We we all can't be the mouse. <laughs> Thanks, guys.